0: The first three chapters, we're kind of in the shallows a little bit in the first three chapters. We have this incredible vision of the risen Christ, and he's walking amidst the lampstands which represent the church, and then we come to the seven churches in Revelation, and then when we get to, uh, when we arrive at chapter four, and uh, without warning, the familiar ground just disappears beneath our feet and the floor drops away and we're left floundering a little bit like this in this sea of revelation and we're really not quite sure which side is up or which way around we're actually meant to be. You know, the reality is, uh, you know, looking through the book of Revelation, we could, we could very easily uh, spend two years looking at it in, in detail and, and, and really never uh, fully figuring out what it's all about, but the, the idea of this series, we're going we're to aim to take the main highway. We're going to to take the main highway. Periodically, we will veer off into side roads and see what is is down there. But the way the Book of Revelation is is written, it's a grand narrative. It's a big story. And so we're going to keep to the main points. So again, how how do we actually uh, understand uh, the book of of Revelation? Uh, Its structure is is highly visual in nature with its imagery and often perplexing uh, symbolism. You know, I think Paul had it right on the money last week. We kind of popped the next slide up. And suggesting that we should come to the book of Revelation not as a piece of literature uh, merely to be read in a cognitive like manner, but rather we, the, the book of Revelation needs to be entered into as you would a cinematic experience. And what I'm going to do this week to help us on our way, I'm going to kind of add to that analogy, and it's that of the art gallery. If you could pop the next slide up. Within this art gallery, you have have different rooms. I was was informed by my dear daughter who's an artist that they describe it as as different installations. They're they're highly visible, multi-sensory. But it's a part of the whole. It's having something unique to communicate. And yet incredibly intentional in structure. You know, so, so when it comes to actually kind of separating the actual uh, the, 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 the series of Revelation into the seven weeks, you know, we weren't just kind of cutting up arbitrary the different chunks of Scripture. There's very much a reason why we kind of cut the Scripture up in, in the way we did. You know, there is intentionality in the way the Apostle John leads us into the different installations of this virtual gallery. And, uh, and last week in, in the midst, uh, we see Christ in the midst of his church, as I said, the seven churches, and this week we're going to experience the second installation. And the title is The Church in a World of Chaos and Confusion as another preacher once put it, a kingdom stirred, but not shaken. So let's read Revelation 4, 1 to 8. So it's up on the screen. So chapter 4, starting at verse 1. After this I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speak to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne, and surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And these are the sevenfold spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings, and day and night they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. Join the D-Day landings, or in in, in any battle for that matter, the place to get the clearest idea of what uh, was going on, or what is going on, is not at the beaches, or in the center of the conflict, but it's actually in the command center. It's a place where ultimate decisions are made and plans are drawn up and objectives are set and the big picture is observable. So here we find John incarcerated on the Isle of Patmos because of his faith. And then suddenly he sees this door standing open before him. He'd already experienced that that, that thin place that we talk about. Uh, We we see that in chapter 1 where he sees this glorious vision of Christ. But now what seems to be a portal has opened before him. And John is personally invited into the command center of the whole world universe, since heaven itself before the creator. This here isn't talking about a vision of a, a heaven, a new heaven and a new earth yet to come. This is heaven as it is now as we live and breathe. And John's experience resonates with that with the apostle uh, Paul. and Paul talks about his experience by saying, "I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven, where he heard inexplicable things, things that no one is permitted to tell." And now John is seeing inexpressible things, but John is being told to tell and to write them down for the church. And what he writes down is is, is truly awesome. It's an incredible vision describing the indescribable in the best way he is, is, is able you yeah, one know, of, one of the kind of films, one of the, one of the film soundtracks that was uh, out uh, a, a few years ago had the most annoying soundtrack. If you could put the next slide up, Peter. Who knows what the, the, the film is? And, and who can remember that most annoying track? How does it go? Everything, Everything is, awesome. is awesome. Really? What a little load of tosh. Excuse the language. Because everything isn't awesome, is it? You know, one of the problems where we overuse adjectives such as awesome and brilliant and amazing, and we hear it all of the time, where do you go after that? Yeah, when you want to describe that which is, is, is truly awesome... And let's face it, it's only God who is truly awesome and amazing. He's the matchless king of the universe. The one who is seated on high. And in his sovereignty and mighty power, he orchestrates the direction of the whole show. And you ask, how and why does he do it? Because he is the one that created The whole show. And here in Revelation chapter 4 verse 4, John sees these 24 elders seated around the throne and they're dressed in white with gold crowns on their head. They're washed, they're victorious, they're a royal priesthood. And it's representing the the whole people of God who are departed. Saying that we've heard of, this week, who is now departed. This is where he is. Isn't that incredible? Victorious. And then we see these otherworldly creatures and they're covered with eyes all around and six wings. How do you guess up your mind around that? And these four living creatures, they, they, they mirror the four creatures that Ezekiel sees 600 years earlier. There's consistency here. And they are worshipping. Chapter 411, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and had their being. (laughs) Well, you don't get much more amazing and awesome than that, do you? So, where do we go from here? A snapshot of heaven. And now we turn, I'm kind of rushing on a little bit, we come to the four S's in these chapters of Revelation as we continue our experience. And first we have the scroll. Then we have the seals. Then we have the sainted multitude. And then we have silence. I love alliteration. I think most preachers do. The first thing we're going to look at is is, is the scroll. What's the scroll? And John sees that in the right hand of the one who is sat on the throne... You know, in this world there are many thrones, but this throne is the ultimate. And he sees one, the one who is sat on the throne, and in his right hand is a scroll. And what is this scroll? It's the book of destiny. And its contents are the ultimate purposes of God, and it's where all this is heading. Often the question goes out, doesn't it, when we go through times of turmoil or uncertainty, we ask, what's all this about? This is where the book of Revelation speaks so powerfully into this. This is the book of destiny, where it's all heading. And then we have this mighty angel, and the question goes out, who is worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll? You know, it's, it's one thing if, uh, if a letter comes through uh, your door and, uh, and written on it is to whomever it may uh, concern or, or, or to the, the, the occupant of 49 High Street or, or whatever, you know, properties in your area in high demand at the moment. Who's ever had those through the door? <laughs> but it's altogether different to have emblazoned across the front whoever is worthy. And the response comes back with a devastating effect. There is no one. Neither on heaven nor on earth. And all John is able to do is weep. It's a heart wrenching cry that comes from the gut. You see, John recognised that he too, the Apostle John, was part of the problem. He was a contributor to the brokenness of God's good creation you know the devastating reality is that that we are all contributors to the screwed up state of the world that we find ourselves in yet we're all culpable aren't we because we are all sinners all fatally flawed but you know it's only when we recognize and acknowledge the gravity of our sin can we really see our need for a savior? And then verse five, one of the elders said to me, "Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. He is able to open the scroll and it seals. And now ricocheting round John's mind. Is not the despair of unworthiness. But the glorious promise of this saviour God. And this image of the true lion king. Now floods his mind. And it should flood ours as well. And then suddenly the camera turns and we see this lamb looking as if it had been slain now he's on center stage i don't know if you've ever kind of come across the piece of work by Sidney carter it's called it's on a friday morning it's taken from the of the perspective of the thief on the cross next to christ It says, it was on a Friday morning that they took me from the cell and I saw they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You you can blame it on Pilate, you can blame it on the Jews. You can blame it on the devil, but it's God whom I accuse. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter hanging on a tree, Now Barabbas was a killer and they let Barabbas go. But you are being crucified for nothing here below. And God is up in heaven. And he doesn't do a thing. With a million angels watching and they never move a wing. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter, hanging on a tree, you know the most amazing and awesome thing is about the Christian faith, is that it was God they crucified instead of you and me. The Lamb of God slain for us. In order that's messed up, screwed up men and women like you and I may become, as one preacher put it, the gar- darlings of God's heart. Jesus Christ, the matchless, peerless Lamb of God, Savior of the world. And no wonder they sing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And so it's the lamb that is able to take the scroll because it's only he who is worthy, And as we move on to chapter 6, these seals are opened one seal at a time. You know, it, it's really only as these uh, seven seals are opened that the rest of John's vision starts to unfold They're central to the whole book of Revelation. And so what do we find in the seals? Well, the seals I'm going to describe as, 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 as the seals of, of suffering. Well, the first four seals are kind of pretty straightforward uh, to explain, where we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if we could put on the next slide. You can follow in your Bibles, verse, uh, verses, uh, verses 3 to 4 in in. Uh, in, in chapter uh, six, we see peace being taken from the earth. You know, man's atrocities against man. You know, we, we were kind of clearly reminded of this this week in the atrocious events that happened in New Zealand. Forty-nine Muslims cut down in cold blood because of an extremist, far-right ideologies. Verses five to six, we see injustice, don't we? Yeah, we see inflated prices. You yeah, know, we see the, the prices of the basic foods, they they shoot up so that today's wages can only afford a, a, a day's worth of food. Yet yeah, we see in this the injustice, those, those, those items of luxury like oil and wine. They're not touched. <coughs> You know, we look at the injustice of the world, we could actually kind of spend a, a couple of sermons on this, couldn't we? You know, those who, is, who have the luxury of living where we live and doing what we do, and it's really those on the bottom of the food chain that really kind of get hit every time. And then we see the humanitarian uh, disasters moving on, famine and disease, etc., Etc. So when do these they, when do these four horsemen ride? Maybe we ask ourselves. Well, the truth is they ride throughout history. You know, such is the world. I don't know if any of uh, you have watched the film, The Mission, and, and one of the kind of most profound quotes of of uh, the, the the characters in the film is he says that such have we made the world. And now here's one of our, 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 our side rows that we're going to kind of head down not too far. Who is this rider on the white charger, the, 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 the white horse? Well, it's been argued uh, by some that it's actually Christ. It kind of reflects, or it's, it's a forward reflection <coughs> on, on, on this king on the white horse in Revelation 9 and whose, word, whose name is the word of God. You know, William Hendrickson, a, a New Testament scholar uh, of the last century, takes up four pages of just a 200-page commentary on Revelation, and he argues that it is indeed Christ. <coughs> but I think uh, that the truth is that it, it isn't Christ. You see, this is a kind of picture of chaos and ensuing chaos. Chaos. And also in verse 2, chapter 6, we see this rider is not only a conqueror, he's also bent on conquest. There is a sense of being unsatisfied, unfulfilled. And yet we've only had to to glance back into chapter 5, verse 5, and we see this lion lamb has already triumphed. In 2007, a former uh, MI5 whistleblower, I can't remember his name, And he posted a series of videos on YouTube claiming to be the Messiah. Don't know how far that got, or how many hits he got. And of course, when we go to Matthew 24, we see Jesus himself said, Many will come in my name, claiming that I am the Christ. We're told not to be fooled, aren't we? The truth is, most scholars would actually say that this rider may resemble Christ, but he is in fact counterfeit, false, many false Christs will come claiming to be the one stamp counterfeit. And so we're going to race forward, as it were, to seal number five, and we discover the souls of the saints underneath the altar, and this is a picture of the church under intense pressure. I shared a little bit last week at the Fulani Church in Burkina. But this is the context where which John is writing from a church under intense pressure. You know, we can be persecuted for lots of things and in many ways. But this is a picture of those who had paid the ultimate price. Why? Because of their faithful testimony. They had not backed down under cultural Pressure and they were martyred for it. You know, what a person sacrifices for the sake of the gospel is never, ever wasted. And whatever a person sacrifices for the gospel. Never, it never ever goes unnoticed before God's eternal throne. You know, they may have felt like losers because they were cut down in cold blood. But in God's sight, they are far from being losers. And they are given these white robes. And these are the robes of victory. They have overcome. They've paid with their very lives. And when all is said and done, victory is theirs. And spotless they stand before heaven's throne. And they appear in absolute contrast to what comes next when seal number six is opened. <coughs> could move the, f- the slide forward, that's And as the sixth seal is undone, so all those who refuse to follow the Lamb are undone. And this apocalyptic scene now mirrors the words of the prophet Joel, doesn't it? When Joel says the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then the camera suddenly turns and here we see the powerful and the mighty. And what are they doing? They're trying to evade the scrutiny of the lamb. And the term springs to mind, doesn't it, that you can run, but ultimately you can never hide. And maybe this morning you've never made a decision for Christ. And maybe you're putting it off. Maybe you're waiting for that better offer. Maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you're looking for something a little bit more progressive. You may think that time is on your side. Really? It's probably the biggest gamble you could ever make. Because according to Scripture, now is always... Always, always the day of salvation. Chapter 7. I'd like to say that we're actually now coming into land, but this next canvas that John introduces lifts us up into the stratosphere. As we see, this was described as this, this great multitude beyond counting. And now we could enter into an, another one of these kind of side roads, but the danger of kind of heading down a side road, you could end up in a, in a cul de sac. And the question is who is this? Who, who, who are the 144,000? The and uh, what, what, are they, what, what, what are they pointing towards? How do we actually understand who they are in our kind of eschatological presuppositions, as it were. And what about this great tribulation? What's, what's all that about in verse 14? And when does it take place, if indeed it is a specific point in future events? But we don't want to veer off too far, so I'm going to stick again to the main road. You see, in the book of Revelation... We, it uses stylized numbering systems. For example, seven stands for completeness. A thousand is used to describe an unspecified large number of people. Twelve is representative of the people of God. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve apostles. And so when we come to this 144,000, the point isn't necessarily just talking about the tribes of Israel per se. The point is that no one is missing. It's not 143,999. They are all there. And then the camera turns again, and now the focus is on this great multitude that no one could count people from every nation and tribe and people and, 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 and language, and they are all there. <coughs> and, these aren't, and these ones aren't cowering or hiding like those at the close of chapter six. They are standing. Before the throne of God above I have this strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven He stands. No tongue can bid me thence depart. It just looks like this big crowd. But everybody's there. I'll be there. If you trusted in Jesus, you will be there. We'll be there. What a glorious, amazing, and awesome picture we find. What an unparalleled hope. And then as the seventh seal is opened, ever falls silent. but it's only for half an hour. And then the celebrations continue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this absolutely amazing book. I thank you that you are worthy and we're able to actually get just a snapshot, but Father, it's for eternity and we worship you and we bless you as we get our world into the perspective of your eternity and it's all because of Jesus. Amen.